Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we have the one and only Ben Greenfield. I've had like uh, trips to Europe where there was one recent trip to Italy where just because I was in Italy and I was, I was eating a lot more like gelato and bread and wine, but where I was staying was quite close to a lake. And so I'd hike about a mile to the lake each morning, do a, a soak and a swim for about 15 to 20 minutes. And my average blood glucose coming out of two weeks in Italy was 70. And, wow. and, and that, you know, I'm normally, you know, upper eighties. And I think a big part of that was just that that cold soak every single day. So, so cold has a pretty, pretty significant impact on blood glucose regulation. I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, super grateful to be here with you today. My name is Ben Azadi, best-selling author of three books, founder of Keto Camp. Learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Today's episode, we have Ben Greenfield. Chances are you've been listening to the Ben Greenfield podcast for many, many years, and you've read his incredible books and you followed his extraordinary work. We have a 60-minute conversation that will just make such a big impact on your life and hopefully you share it with other people so it can make a big impact in their life. The first thing I asked Ben is if he believes in this work-life balance and how does he seem to integrate work and life and wife and kids and travel and put it all together and his structure is very inspiring so i hope you got a lot from that and we talk about the importance of living life on purpose with your purpose doing things authentically we talk about the book the top five regrets of the dying and ben reveals the top five regrets of the dying from that book from bonnie ware we talk about how ben responds to hateful comments on YouTube and Instagram. I mean, we, let's face it, there's a lot of hate out there. And then we get into his brand new book, Boundless. That book is huge. It is so dense with incredible information on health, not just keto. There is a chapter on keto, which we'll get into keto cycling and all that. But the book dives into digestion and hormones and fat loss and muscle and everything understanding this human machine. So we talk about the inspiration regarding that. And then we get into the GLUT4 transporter, which is a process in the body that actually helps with your blood sugars and it prevents the blood sugars from being stored as fat and actually uses it for fuel. So we get into his favorite biohacks for activating the GLUT4 transporter, which is a great way to control your blood sugars. Then we get into the carnivore diet and how to do it the right way. If you wanna do it long-term, can it be done? Ben gives his thoughts on that. So this is going to be one of those episodes where you're going to want to grab a pen and paper and take a lot of notes and probably listen to it a few times. We did also record the video interview with Ben for this, and you can watch that over on youtube.com slash ketocamp. Before I bring Ben on, I want to get to the Apple podcast rating and review of the day. This is a rating and review from VC Guitar Girl titled A Big Thank You. Thank you, Ben and Dr. Cole, for your sincere enthusiasm and for the health care and condition of the people. It is very inspiring and gives hope that if we treat our bodies as God intended, eating the food he created unprocessed at its most basic level and proper proportions, we can be used for healing and medicinal purposes and actually help us live longer, more prosperous, and better lives. Well, Valerie... Thank you, VC Guitar Girl, for leaving that rating and review. We so appreciate it. Your review is incredible. It's actually a well-written review that would take me a few minutes to get through, but I got the highlight notes for it uh, that I read, and I just appreciate you 
for leaving that rating and review. I love how much you're studying and applying this information. And I'm glad you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Will Cole, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. Those were some great conversations. Hey, if you have not left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so right now. It really helps the show grow. And when you do so, take a screenshot of your rating and review and send that screenshot to support at ketocamp.com, camp with a K, and we will send you a signed copy of my best-selling fasting book, United States only, so put your shipping address there, and it would really help the show grow if you left that rating and review. I have an exciting new online program that I just launched. It's called the Keto Camp Membership. With your Keto Camp Membership, you'll get access to over 50 videos teaching you keto, intermittent fasting, and other areas of health. You're also gonna get access to a private Facebook group, exclusive live stream Q&As with me, a monthly newsletter with some of my favorite keto biohacks. You'll get digital downloads for a keto smoothie recipe, my best-selling fasting book, my best-selling sleep book. You're going to get a grocery shopping list, my Keto Camp Blueprint, which is an aisle by aisle instruction for keto, how to get clean keto foods and stay away from the dirty keto foods. There's vegan meal plans for keto. There's regular meal plans for keto. And you'll get all of this, which is valued at over $2,580. You'll get all of this for guess what? One monthly payment of $5. (laughs) That's right, it's not a joke. That's the actual price of the program. $5 per month, canceling time, you can get access to the Keto Camp membership. I encourage you to go to www.startketocamp.com. Remember, camp is spelled with a K, www.startketocamp.com and get access for $5. Start burning fat, get coaching, get assistance, and I wanna see you in the Keto Camp membership. We'll put a link for this as well in the podcast notes. Can't wait to see you in there and help you burn some fat. I wanna briefly take a break here and let you know about my favorite coffee in the world. Look, I'm a coffee snob for good reasons because the right coffee source can be healing to the body, can reduce inflammation and result in weight loss. The wrong coffee beans could actually increase inflammation, cause weight loss resistance and sabotage your keto results. There was a recent study in the Canadian Journal of Physiology and Pharmacology that showed caffeine intake from coffee beans could actually increase fatty acid production and help the participants produce more ketones. Most coffee beans are loaded with pesticides and contaminants and even mold. This is why I love my friends over at Purity Coffee. Hands down the best coffee beans I have ever tried. I have my delicious cup of Purity Coffee in the morning with some grass-fed ghee and MCT oil, and it turns my brain right on and helps my body produce ketones. Purity Coffee is organic, pesticide-free. These beans are specialty grade, and you could get this coffee shipped straight to your door in nitrogen-flushed bags, roastery fresh. Since you are a listener to the Keto Camp Podcast, we have worked out an exclusive coupon code for you to check out Purity Coffee. Head over to www.com ketocampcoffee.com. Use KetoCamp at checkout to get 10% off your order. Again, that is www.ketocampcoffee.com. Use the coupon code KetoCamp at checkout for 10% off your bag of coffee beans. Remember, camp is spelled with a K. Okay, let's bring on Ben Greenfield. I'm blessed to have here with me today biohacker, longevity coach, ex-bodybuilder, 13-time iron triathlete, professional Spartan competitor, speaker, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Beyond Training, Mastering Endurance, Health, and Life, author of Boundless, Upgrade Your Brain, Optimize Your Body, Defy Aging. Ben has one of the top-rated podcasts, the Ben Greenfield Podcast in the world, He has been in the space, a pioneer for many, many years. Welcome, Ben Greenfield. Without further ado, let's bring on the man of the hour, Ben Greenfield. Hey, Ben. Hey, dude. Did you know you spelled the word camp wrong? I think it's with a C. (laughs) Oh, shoot. You know, it's been two years that you're the first person who just let me know. (laughs) 
it's funny because I got all the t-shirts. I got the damn sign up. Damn it. It's funny because whenever I mention Keto Camp, I'm always saying Camp with the K, Camp with the K, just so people know how to look it up. But uh, you, I have a question for you right off the bat. How does a young man who's a personal trainer, I, I used to be a personal trainer too, by the way. How does a young man who's a personal trainer, who's writing programming workouts to the wee of the night, decide that I want to write books, I want to launch a podcast, which is one, one of the most popular podcasts out there. Did you always have goals and aspirations to do what you're doing now? No, like I, I uh, you know, I own a supplements company. And it drives my my CEO crazy because I just like wake up from bed in the morning, pursue my passions, kind of do as extraordinary a job as I can with you know whatever God has put on my plate for that day, and generally just kind of try to make good decisions. And I work really hard, and uh, I follow the golden rule of just trying to to love other people as much as possible. You know, with with you know, whatever my purpose in life is, whatever my, my passions and my skill sets happen to be at the time. And um, I mean, as as silly and simplistic as it might sound, part of it just comes down to me pursuing my passions and the things I happen to be interested at the time, whether it's, you know, free diving and spearfishing or triathlon or Spartan or, you know, anything like that. And then just, you know, kind of writing about things, teaching people about things, trying out different diets, different supplements, different fitness modalities, and just just kind of immersing myself and the stuff I love to do, and then turning around and teaching other people about what I've learned. That's kind of like been my been my model. But, uh, you know, honestly, as far as the personal training thing goes, you know, for, for me, kind of that shift towards wanting to do more, more media, more, I guess, arguably, uh, sit at home in your underwear, writing blog posts and recording podcasts and, and writing books type of stuff was basically the the birth of my twin boys 12 years ago. Really, motivated me to uh, try to shape, at least as far as the logistics of my career, a scenario in which I could be at home a lot more homeschooling them and spending time with my children, compared to what I was doing at the time, which was just like living at a gym. You know, I owned all these personal training uh, studios and and gyms in Idaho and Washington, I was pretty much just like driving from gym to gym, training clients from 5am in the morning till 9pm at night, you know, and then coming home and hanging out with my wife. And um, that's not really conducive to the family life. It's not exactly nine to five. So I kind of reshaped my career mostly just to just to be a better, better family man. Do you believe in the thought process of work life balance? Or do you fall into philosophy of just everything life? Uh, I guess I fall into a philosophy of, of self-actualization, right? Like identify your unique skill sets in life, what it is that God made you good at, what you feel called to do, what you love to do when you were a kid, what makes time go by quickly for you now, what puts a big smile on your face. You know, for me, it's things like writing and reading and researching and, and then, you know, if, if you really shape your career around those passions and interests, you're really going to gonna live a more self-actualized life in which not only does does work feel a little bit more like like play, not to say that work isn't still hard, you know, and there, there are certainly days when I got to, you know, sit down and, and churn out some, you know, 3000 word article on, you know, some scientific topic. And sometimes, you know, I, I'd rather be, uh, I don't know, like experimenting with some pork belly recipe up in the kitchen, you know, because because that feels more self actualized to me in the moment. But but you know, I, I do and I work hard, but I but I still enjoy it. I find it deeply fulfilling. And, you know, the same could be said of work life balance. I mean, you know, for me, when I'm playing tennis with my kids or making a meal with my wife or, you know, playing music with the family or journaling and meditating or, you know, working out in the yard or taking care of the goats and chickens or whatever, you know, a lot of that kind of feeds into what I do in my work and reflects a lot of the the, the little things that I teach in my blog or my podcast. And so, you know, I, I probably have a little bit of, I guess, like a jaded approach just because I happen to to be blessed to be able to do a lot of the things that, that really heavily relate to my work. And so work-life balance is a little bit easier for me. Um, but, but really, I think if you're self-actualized, if you've identified a purpose in life that really fuels your passions and you're steering your life in that direction, then, you know, work-life balance becomes less tricky to to arrange well said yeah i've done a lot of work personally determining my highest values with the work of like dr john d martini 
uh, and it really helped inspire me to live on purpose with my unique purpose. And I've heard you say before, Ben, you referenced the book that I read as well, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And uh, the number one regret was not living a life true to yourself, but what other people expected of you. So could you share a little bit about that and how that's something that you don't want to experience throughout your life? Yeah, that's a really powerful article slash book by uh, Bonnie Rare, I think is the is the gal, right? The, uh, palliative care physician who who generated those five regrets. You know, I, I wish I'd chosen to be my true authentic self more than what the world expected me to be. I wish I'd stayed in touch with old friends. I wish I'd I'd chosen to be happy more. I wish I'd shown my true emotions, uh, and I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I think those are the top five. And regarding that first one that you alluded to. This idea of being your true authentic self, you know, we we do live in an area or in an era that, you know, even kind of like more dramatically emphasized due to social media and the ability to be able to see so many other people's lives and have so many other people commenting on your life that there's a lot of peer pressure to to be someone other than who you truly want to be. I've had to deal with that, like like deep down in my core, like I'm a just like a a total creative uh, romantic, you know, I, I grew up playing chess and playing violin and, and reading and writing fantasy fiction. I was homeschooled. I wasn't the kind of kid you look at and expect to be like a like a jock or a performance enthusiast. And you know, I, a, a large part of you know my my early years in kind of adolescence and in teenagerhood involved me really wanting to prove to the world that I was cool. And I got good at things like weightlifting and bodybuilding and tennis and sculpting my body and being kind of like a, a badass, don't mess with me, you know, total, you know, male yang role model, really to a large extent, because I thought that was cool. And I spent, you know, I, I, I spent probably 15 years of my life a little bit more disconnected from my creative self than would have been ideal in terms of, of not really ex exploring areas that I, I also find deeply fulfilling, like fiction, like music, like, like, you know, cooking, and, you know, a lot of these things that I just didn't think were cool. And I don't have any regrets. I'm, I'm totally grateful for, for the path that I've been given in life, because, you know, a lot of my deep delving into, you know, biohacking and fitness and ultra performance and all these masochistic endurance events I did for so long that taught me a lot about physiology and nutrition and recovery and biohacking modalities and everything else. I mean, that that's that's been wonderful for me in terms of accelerating my learning career and and my career as a whole. Uh, however, I would say that had I stayed on that path and not delved into a lot of the things I'm, I'm doing now, you know, I'm I'm writing songs and learning a lot of kind of mixing tactics in my home studio and I'm, I'm writing fiction. I'm reading more fiction. I'm playing a lot more music. I'm spending a lot more time kind of, you know, close to earth plant foraging and, and bow hunting and fishing and, and doing a lot of these things I neglected for a long time, just cause I was, I was being a, a badass fit guy, you know, who could rip off, rip off my shirt and, you know, throw spears and, you know, do Spartan races and triathlons and stuff like that. And, you know, I find in the health and fitness community, there are a lot of people who are doing those things, attempting to create a body or a physique or a health status that doesn't necessarily reflect their true authentic self, but it's just what they think the world perceives as cool. And, and because of that, I think a lot of people are, are disconnected from their true selves, which I mean, uh, a trauma researcher named uh, Gabor Mate, uh, you know, he, he defines trauma as just being disconnected from your true authentic self. And since I've really embraced this idea of not only returning to my youth, as far as the things that I did enjoy that I know really fuel me and have fueled me since I was a boy, you know, the, the creative romantic side of me, and also embrace the spiritual side, you know, more prayer, more meditation, more union with God, more worship, more involvement with the church, more journaling, more solo time, you know, a lot of the things that would be considered spiritual disciplines, I find myself far more deeply fulfilled than I think I would have been had I just stayed on the path of just pure fitness or pure you know, very, very, very masculine, you know, show your body off to the world, be who the world expects you to be type of mentality, you know, because I did spend a lot of time just trying to be the cool jock, when in fact, that's not who I am at my core. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's super important to embrace your true authentic self and understand that while 
you know, that you are going to find that the world might perceive some elements of that not to be cool. In the long run, it doesn't come down to what the world expects you to be, but instead comes down to, you know, loving other people, loving God, and being your true, authentic self. And especially if you're your true, authentic self, and you're following the golden rule, meaning you're not your true, authentic self, as an doesn't care about what anybody else thinks, but instead, you're your true authentic self because you want to bring your best self out to the world to to give to people as much as possible based on the unique skill set that you have, then, you know, I think that that's really a way to avoid being on your deathbed and being full of regrets just because you were jumping through the hoops that other people expected of you rather than being your true authentic self. Speaking of loving on others, have you ever been challenged personally with hateful comments on social media and um, how do you respond to that? Do you send them love and prayers? Have you ever had a challenge with yourself whenever you see those comments come in? Um, I generally don't engage for a few reasons. First of all, there's that cartoon that kind of has been viral on the internet for a while. You know, the guy up late on the computer and his wife, you know, is coming in trying to get him to go to bed. And he's like, I can't, I can't. Somebody on Twitter is wrong. And, you know, there are people that spend a lot of their times on forums and on Twitter threads and in the comment section of their blogs and in the Instagram messages, just replying to everyone a, because there's kind of a deep seated ego that wants to ensure that if someone has disagreed with you on something, it's your prerogative to prove or to argue that you are right. And I get that, you know, I, I get that, that there's a healthy amount of human pride, but sometimes that ego can pull you into spending time replying to a lot of those comments and laying out solid arguments for whatever it is that you believe in, but it might not be your best use of your time. I understand it can move the dial a little bit to engage, but you get to a certain point where it's just, you, you just, you know, especially, you know, as I found my own social media platform grows, you just can't keep up. You know, I used to pride mm -hmm. myself on replying to all the messages and just being there for everyone. And you just can't, especially when it comes to trolls and people who want to start long arguments that just never end people who don't want to, you know, be convinced of, of a viewpoint that might be contrary to theirs, but people who just want to argue for argument's sake, who want to be a troll for trolling's sake. And that, you know, it, it can be very draining. It can induce a lot of negative energy in your life. So I, I generally avoid now, you know, just because I'd rather be, you know, making a snowman with my kids than jumping into some Twitter comment about, you know, the exact number of macros that you need to whatever maintain nutritional ketosis or something like that. And then the other part of it is, you know, I, I'm also a big believer, you know, in, you know, books like Gary Keller's One Thing or, or Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week that dictate that you should really try to outsource a lot of the things that aren't the best use of your time or the things that don't satisfy your purpose best to people who do an amazing job at and love to do those things, right? So I have a few social media assistants who are really able to, you know, to monitor comments and monitor messages. And if there's something that I really need to reply to, then, you know, I'll jump in and reply. But usually it's not because, I'm monitoring Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and reading all those messages. It's instead that I have a social media team doing that. And if I really need to jump in because something's way out of control or, you know, this happens sometimes, like I'll interview somebody on my podcast and then someone will dive into that person's history and find out, oh, hey, you know, let's, let's just throw an example out there. Like this person, you know, 12 years ago was filed as a sexual offender in, in state XYZ and someone will send that over to me. And then, you know, that's a situation where I just want to make sure I put out the fire. I look into, you know, whether or not that's true. Sometimes I'll call the person or email them and get their side of the story. And I just, you know, I, I never want to be positioned as someone who is giving a platform to people who might be ethically or morally compromised. Like that's a situation where sometimes, you know, if I've interviewed someone like that on a podcast, I won't delete the podcast, but I'll go in and, and I'll, I'll add some clarifying statements. You know, it has come to my attention that such and such has a history of XYZ. I in no way agree with anything that they did. I consider that to be wrong. You know, that this podcast does contain helpful information regarding something completely different than you know the bad things that person did but you know I'll, I'll let my audience know you know so so basically if there are big fires that need to be put out from a social media or messaging standpoint I'll do that but for the most part aside from that I just ignore any any vitriolic activity or trolling or you know long text threads that require just tons of your time because it's just it's not worth it in the long run compared to other more valuable things that you might be up to how many people do you have on your team your total 
Uh, well, it, it's kind of interesting because the way that my business is set up is Keon, my supplements company, also owns my brand, Ben Greenfield Fitness. And so that dictates that I've kind of got, you know, when you ask how many people, that includes, you know, entire supplements company, along with everybody running, you know, for Ben Greenfield Fitness, everything from podcast editing to social media, etc. And then, you know, I also have an executive assistant who lives near me here in Spokane, Washington, as well as a person who kind of is at my house during the day, helping out with various tasks, you know, just like, you know, mail and processing and, and secretary type of work, things like that. And so it comes out to about 38 people that I actually have on staff working as either employees or, or independent contractors. Awesome. So let's get into your book, Ben, Boundless. This is a big baby right here. How did this spawn? What was the inspiration for this book? I got really interested in anti-aging and longevity about three and a half years ago and wanted to write a book on both ancestral science and modern science or ancestral wisdom, I should say, and modern science as it applies distinctly to anti-aging and longevity. So I wanted to get into, you know, interplay between NAD and sirtuins, for example, or the use of, of uh, peptides, you know, like Russian peptides and and some of the, the U.S. research on peptides. And I wanted to get into the blue zones and you know, and, and what a lot of these, you know, centenarian, super centenarian areas are, are doing to enhance longevity from a more natural standpoint, what kind of teas and coffees are they drinking, whatever the polyphenols and flavanols and antioxidants that might be in those compounds, you know, what are the fasting protocols that seem to work? What are the fasting protocols that, that seem to not work? And, you know, as I got deeper into a book on anti-aging and longevity, I realized that there are so many, so many biological mechanisms that underlie aging, you know, from immunity to collagen breakdown to, you know, depletion of NAD to even relationships, spirituality, gratitude, emotions, epigenetics, genetics, etc. that I really need to write a more all encompassing book that incorporated mind, body and spirit optimization that went beyond just, you know, how long can you live, but just how much energy can you have each day of the life that you are living. And so it kind of morphed from being a book that was largely going to be focused on anti-aging and longevity to a book that's more of like an all-encompassing blueprint on how to have all the energy that you want at your beck and call every day. So I dug into, you know, digestion and hormones and immunity and performance and fat loss and muscle and, and just everything under the sun when it comes to how you can kind of understand the human machine and based on the blueprint behind it, set up your life, your diet, your exercise program, your biohacking modalities, your supplements, your nutrients, everything to basically give you all the energy that you want all day long. And that, that's why the title wound up being boundless, you know, have all the boundless energy you want at your beck and call whenever you need it. And so, so that was kind of, kind of how the book came to be. And, um, you know, the way I write books is, is I'll generally start a big uh, Google Drive folder because I like to work in the cloud. Usually I'll have a, a few people on staff who are scientific editors, researchers, and, and each folder in that Google Drive uh, is dedicated to each chapter. So I'll have a selection of documents in the Google Drive, and one might be the, the chapter that I'm working on, one might be people I want to interview, one might be research articles, one might be uh, ideas that didn't make it into the book, one might be, you know, sidebars that we could include in the book that might not be in the body of the text, but that are elsewhere. And then you typically, there's multiple documents as you go through the editorial phase too, because certain things get cut. I mean, that book was about 1300 pages. When the manuscript got turned in, it's 600 and something now. And so that means that like 600 plus pages were cut from the book, but still lived on in those Google Docs that were like iterations of each chapter. So what I did was, you know, as anybody who owns the book knows this, when you buy the book, you get access to this URL, where you can put in your order number and get access to all the stuff that was actually cut from the book that didn't make it out of editorial phases. But there was still, you know, stuff I wrote, I didn't want to kiss my babies goodbye, so to speak. So you know, I, I put that all on the website for the book at boundlessbooks.com. And so people can still kind of kind of get a lot of that behind the scenes stuff. But but yeah, that's generally how it works. There's about a about a three year process start to finish to actually get the book out. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product 
called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden your fat burning hormones can do its job. So you lose weight. All of a sudden your cells produce energy. So you feel good. So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you want to get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com. Check them out. Order a bottle or two, and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I do want to start with the, uh, the chapter about Keto, of course, because we're talking. I'm from Keto Camp here. We do follow a similar philosophy, Ben, in, in regards that although my company is called Keto Camp, I don't believe long-term ketosis is healthy. I call it keto flexing, which is carb cycling. And you talk about it in your book. I'm actually writing a brand new book called Keto Flex. Dr. Pompa wrote the foreword. But let's talk about keto. How do we do keto the wrong way? And then how do we do keto the right way? Well, first of all, you spell flex, P-H-L-E-X. <laughs> based on your your spelling mechanism <laughs> i'm not doing that no figure out how to spell you can spell flex with a k keto flex f-l-e-k-s maybe something like that yeah um, that's true okay so so yeah i mean you, you've already kind of alluded to the fact that long-term strict ketosis may not be advantageous for everyone and a matter of fact there's very few use cases for something like that aside from say some forms of cancer, some forms of epilepsy, et cetera. Like, like typically long-term strict and significant glycogen depletion can cause some downstream issues, not only for performance, you know, for anybody who likes to exercise, you just, you just know, you know, cause I, I just got done with 30 days of strict, I did strict keto carnivore for 30 days. And the two main things that I noticed, you know, as, as early as 10 days in were a, my wattage on a bike for any effort longer than about 30 seconds just plummeted, right? Just because as mm. soon as you cross over into glycolysis, you, you see some some pretty significant performance uh, decrements. Whereas, you know, if it's a 10, 20, or 30 second long effort that largely relies upon the splitting of, of, of phosphagen and, and creatine, you know, you, you can get by just fine. But as soon as you, you know, let's say you're, you're playing soccer or something that might have a, a longer bout of running, you know, anything that's somewhat glycolytic, sprint, triathlon, Spartan racing, et cetera, you just don't, you don't have enough glycogen to go around, basically. You just, you just can't produce ATP fast enough through the process of beta oxidation or the shuttling of ketones to produce as much energy as you need rapidly for hard and heavy exercise. And I love to swing the kettlebells. I love high intensity interval training. Like it's one of my favorite ways to stay fit. And so, you know, you, you see a, a little bit of an impact on that. And I certainly did, you know, my last kind of strict keto bout, which like I mentioned was just very recently. I just, I just finished that like a week ago. The other thing was, you know, I'm 38 years old. I still have good testosterone levels. I'm around you know, depending on why I test like 800, 900 for total testosterone and, and my free T is just fine. You know, it tends to be anywhere from, from about 80 up to around 120. So I'm, I'm good as a percentage of my total testosterone from an endocrine standpoint. But although I didn't do uh, pre and post bloods uh, for this particular keto bout that I was on, which was honestly more of a gut reset, that's, that's what influenced me to do it. I was noting increasingly greater amounts of bloating and gas in response to carbohydrates and uh, fiber indicating that I probably had a little bit of bacteria and this is very common that it kind of moved up into my small intestine and I knew I needed to starve that off so I so I switched to strict keto for a while and I went keto carnivore just because honestly I had a freezer full of meat so I had tons of you know pork belly and ribeyes and a whole pantry full of wild planet sardines and anchovies so it's pretty easy and uh, uh, also pretty easy on the budget for me to do just because I had a lot of meat and a lot, a lot of a lot of fatty cuts around and that was pretty much what I did was you know meat and bone broth and 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 the like 
and so uh, the other thing that I noticed was, you know, I tend to back to the testosterone piece, you know, I'll, I'll tend to have sex dreams, I'll get uh, nighttime boners, I'll wake up pretty horny, be horny at night, you know, and my wife and I have, we have, we have a great sexual relationship. But that definitely saw a dent, like I, I was not really very high in the libido department. You know, a big part of that is is the Leydig cells in your testes, they are going to rely to a certain extent upon adequate glucose. And you, you do see an impact on the endocrine system with long term glycogen deprivation. Now, in addition to that, you know, so, so we know, you know, based on what I just said, you know, men might see a drop in libido, women arguably as well. Uh, you're going to see a drop in performance efforts that exceed about 30 seconds of duration if it's if it's a hard effort. And then I was part of Jeff Volek's faster study back in, I think that one was 2013 or 14, which involved uh, following a strict about 90% fat-based intake for 12 months, which was a great way to model the study, right? Because a lot of these studies, low-carb, high-fat, or ketosis, they do not involve a long enough introductory period to the study for adequate conversion of the human body into efficient fat burning meaning you know if you were to test someone's respiratory quotient their uh, their proportion of, of carbon dioxide produced and oxygen consumed that reflect the amount of, of fat burnt their rq still hasn't dropped considerably by the time the test starts and usually it's anywhere from three to six months to actually begin to be able to burn ketones very effectively or engage in beta oxidation to the extent that you're churning out enough atp for pretty good energy levels during exercise. And so this study actually had a 12 month period of strict ketosis and I was in the ketosis group. And then it involved uh, a variety of, of tests at University of Connecticut, like a VO2 max test, a three hour run on a treadmill, uh, muscle biopsies, you know, full blood work, microbiome, et cetera. And during that period of time, I did do a lot of blood testing to kind of see what my levels were at and was also tested there in the lab. And while endurance performance was remarkable, you know, because ketones can serve as a throughput for, for the heart, the diaphragm, for the liver, for the brain, my mental performance was, was quite acute uh, or, or acutely uh, increased uh, via that stint of ketosis. Again, I, I saw almost hypogonadal levels of testosterone. By the time that study ended, I was right around like 250 to 300 around in there. And again, you got to bear in mind, I was also exercising heavily. You know, I was competing in Ironman triathlon, which will have an impact in and of itself on testosterone, but I had never experienced libido or testosterone levels that low as I did when I was following those 12 months of strict ketosis. I had a lot of joint pain, probably because I didn't have enough glycogen on board for the proper formation of proteoglycans, like my recovery was diminished. Uh, my heart rate variability, which I just began testing, was, was consistently pretty low. And then my, my thyroid, my TSH rose to about six, six and a half, which indicates that uh, I, I wasn't getting very good T4 to T3 conversion, which is a little bit dependent on glucose as well. So mm -hmm. some impacts on endocrine function, thyroid function, performance function, and joint health were the main things that I noticed during that. And that, that's not uncommon, you know, anecdotally for a lot of people following strict ketosis, especially a lot of active people following strict ketosis to experience that. And so when I finished that study, you know, I actually enjoyed a lot of the mental benefits, a lot of the endurance performance benefits that I was getting from ketosis and from strict ketosis particularly. But then I shifted into a lot more of what I do now, which is essentially what you briefly alluded to, uh, uh, cyclic ketosis. And, and for some people, that's like a weekend carbohydrate refeed. For more active people like myself or for, you know, athletes, elite performers, people who are exercising pretty hard, bodybuilders, weightlifters, et cetera, that can be a daily refeed. And for me, based on circadian rhythmicity and, and timing of my workouts, typically that's an evening carbohydrate refeed, simply because A, my workouts occur in the afternoon or early evening. And although yes, insulin sensitivity is technically higher in the morning, dictating that in the absence of an afternoon or an early evening workout, that the, the timing of the carbohydrates would probably better be with breakfast than with dinner, but there are a few kind of wrenches that get thrown in that equation. A, I kind of like to tap into a lot of the longevity benefits of intermittent fasting. And so I'm not eating much of a breakfast anyways. And you know, that, that goes for a lot of people who are just doing like fats in their coffee or tea for breakfast, which is quite popular in the keto community. And if you throw a wrench in that and say that breakfast is gonna be the carb refeed time of the day, it just doesn't work so well. The other thing is that 
you can induce almost like an artificial state of insulin sensitivity. If you just do your hard workout sometime between like, you know, four and 7pm, let's say if you're gonna have a 730pm dinner, so your upregulation of glute four transporters and insulin sensitivity is remarkably increased with, you know, some type of physical activity later in the day, returning you to as big of a state of insulin sensitivity, if not a greater state of insulin sensitivity in the evening than you're at in the morning. And then with that evening carbohydrate refeed, you know, you find a lot of people in the keto and the fasting community, they do see impaired sleep patterns, especially when they completely cut carbs, even more so again, in the exercising population. And I find that probably because of the serotonin and melatonin response to carbohydrate intake, I sleep better when I save my carbohydrates for the end of the day. So the way I do things is, is a later in the day, high intensity interval training or weight training session, dinner that'll include anywhere from 100 to 200 grams of carbs, an intermittent fast of 12 to 16 hours, continued intake of, of primarily fats, proteins, and depending on the type of diet I'm on, some kind of vegetables during the day, and then rinse, wash, and repeat that with the carb refeed in the evening. And the final thing is, obviously, from an overtraining standpoint, you're not going to do a super hard workout every single day right before dinner. You're just going to tear yourself into the ground by doing that. Now, you can get some amount of insulin sensitivity with just something quick, like 30 burpees, but you can also use some nutritional science to be able to enhance your glucose uh, uptake and insulin sensitivity prior to dinner for a carbohydrate refeed using tactics such as berberine, apple cider vinegar, Ceylon cinnamon, you know, chromium, vanadium. There's a variety of different insulin sensitizing agents that you can use prior to an evening carbohydrate refeed if you aren't doing a hard workout before dinner from a budget standpoint, from a, from a supplement cost standpoint. And I've tested this with my continuous blood glucose monitor. If you've worked out, you don't, you don't get much added benefit from like doing your hard workout before your evening carbohydrate refeed. And then also taking berberine or bitter melon extract or something like that. Like my company Keon, we make one supplement called lean and that's what it mm -hmm. is. It's a, it's a blood glucose lowering agent, but you know, I've taken that in the presence of a weight training session and I don't get any better control of blood glucose compared to if I, I didn't take it. But then if I haven't trained, uh, that, you know, yesterday was a perfect example. You know, I wear a continuous blood glucose monitor. I took three of the key on lean before dinner last night and we had uh, we had tongue tacos and we're using like those siete wraps. And uh, then I had a piece of dark chocolate after dinner and my blood glucose was about 50 to 60 all night long. And so, you know, there's kind of a, a few different ways to skin the cat when it comes to to increasing insulin sensitivity for that carbohydrate refeed coming full circle. Yeah, that's, that's generally, I think, a better approach, especially for active people for less active people, you know, a more sedentary population folks who are just maybe doing a few walks during the week and a couple of strength training sessions. Sometimes you can take that same scenario, but just do it on say, like a Saturday, or instead of having a carb refeed meal every day, have one carb refeed day every week. Like there's a few different ways to kind of skin the cat. Yeah, I've, I've heard you speak before about upregulating the GLUT4 transporters to help make you more insulin sensitive and pack some of the blood sugar into your muscle and liver cells versus storing it as fat. You had mentioned, I think before you used to go in restaurants, you used to go to the bathroom, do some squats and go back to the dinner table. So what are some other things we can do to help upregulate that GLUT4 transporter? Top of the totem pole is cold. There's nothing for controlling glycemic variability throughout the day that I have found to come close to cold. And that's just via my own measurements with a blood glucose monitor and then repeating that with several of the clients who I work with. And what I mean by that is not an intense like 10 to 20 minute ice bath, but it can be something as simple as two to three minutes of like, you know, pretty cold, cold, like an actual ice bath. Uh, it can be about a five minute cold shower. It can be a brisk 30 minute walk outside, minimally clothed in cold weather. It can be a dip into a cold ocean or river or lake or pool where you're swimming for around 15 to 20 minutes. But I've had like uh, trips to Europe where there was one recent trip to Italy where just because I was in Italy and I was, I was eating a lot more like gelato and bread and wine, but where I was staying was quite close to a lake. And so I'd hike about a mile to the lake each morning, do a, a soak and a swim for about 15 to 20 minutes. And my average blood glucose coming out of two weeks in Italy was 70. And, wow. and, and that, you know, I'm normally, you know, upper eighties. And I think a big part of that was just that that cold soak every single day. So, so cold has a pretty, pretty significant impact on blood glucose regulation. 
so heat, you know, you, you, you get a really steep norepinephrine response to something like a sauna session. And, and you see a sympathetic nervous system activation that kind of similar to the blood glucose rise that you would see after drinking a cup of coffee, which is quite common, or even after doing a hard exercise session, you know, a lot of people will be slightly hyperglycemic after a hard exercise session. The thing is, afterwards, when you get out of the sauna, you see, and they've done research on this, most of the research on it is in rodent models, but increased insulin sensitivity right? Improved glucose utilization due to the upregulation of blood flow to skeletal muscle. And in diabetic rats who did about, it was either a 30 or 60 day bout of hyperthermia, they saw almost a return to non-diabetic blood glucose management and insulin sensitivity. So it's weird because with heat, you see an acute increase in blood glucose, but then long-term chronic sauna use, you actually see an improvement in glucose uh, management and insulin sensitivity. So I'm a fan of both cold and heat. There's just some subtle nuances that you need to be aware of if you're one of those people who's wearing a continuous blood glucose monitor and might, you know, freak out and be like, oh, sauna's throwing my blood glucose out of control. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a temporary rise, initial stress response, but then long-term actually improve resilience or increase your ability to be able to handle stress. That's kind of what the sauna does. So I'd say cold is good, heat is good, and probably other than the, the insulin sensitizing agents that I named off, a few of those herbs and spices, and then like a strength training session towards the end of the day, low-level physical activity during the day. You know, and again, mo most of the people I work with, they'll wear a CGM or do regular like quarterly blood testing. And I've found the sweet spot for most people is at least 10,000 steps a day and preferably closer to 15,000. And it's kind of shocking because I'll, I'll start working with a lot of people who are fitness enthusiasts and, you know, CrossFitters and the like and they'll they'll do and this this is a well-known phenomenon that you know they'll do a hard workout session at 6 a.m but then almost kind of either a hypercalorically compensate because they worked really hard that morning or else just sit around more and you know these these hardcore exercise enthusiasts you'll look at their step count they're like six to eight thousand right and i see better blood glucose management in, in people who are like saving all their phone calls to walk uh while you and i are talking for people not watching the video i'm walking on a treadmill i do that a lot you know just using any excuse that you can to commute to walk when i travel you know, a lot of times I've been in situations where, you know, I'm at an Airbnb with a bunch of people and we want to go grab groceries and I pull up like Whole Foods on Google Maps. And it's like, you know, two miles away. And I say, great, let's go. Let's go get some groceries. I start walking down the road and everybody's piling into the car. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm walking to Whole Foods, to get groceries. Uh, <laughs> and it's a foreign concept to a lot of people, but kind of, yeah. kind of restructuring your day, your office experience, your life, et cetera, just to be able to walk or move as much as possible. That's a really good blood glucose management strategy as well. So, so those are a few of the things that I found to be pretty effective. Yeah, that's interesting what you shared about the sauna. I, I was wearing a CGM for a couple of months and I live in Miami. It's, it's It was super hot here during the summer. It's still hot. So I would go for a walk with my dog and I would notice that my glucose would actually go up and it was not a sauna type of heat, but it, I was really hot. And then I'd come back home in a cool environment and it dropped right back down. So that's interesting that you shared that. What's the longest you've ever done carnivore, strict carnivore for? Uh, strict carnivore, 30 days. 30 days. That was, that was this year? Yeah, it was just recently. Oh, that was the keto carnivore one that you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you didn't do blood work for that. I did carnivore 40 days strict this year and I wanted to kind of see what it did for my, I have Raynaud's, I wanted to see what it did to my blood work and uh, everything improved for me. My C-reactive protein dropped, my homocysteine dropped, my, all my markers improved and I didn't get that many flare-ups with my autoimmune, which is super interesting. But I also believe, and I want to hear your thoughts, I also believe that there's not one diet that if we follow strict long-term that could benefit us. I believe that eventually we start to lose those results and eventually we could get sick. And I believe that for carnivore as well. So do you align with that? Do you believe that there's not one diet that if we stick to long-term could continuous gives, uh, continue give us benefits? Um, so there's a few kind of nuances there. First of all, I, I do agree with folks like Dr. Paul Saladino, who would argue that you can get all the nutrients and vitamins that you need from meat, aside from perhaps some electrolytes and minerals that you might get from, from salt. And I, I do think that's the case. I, I think that human beings can survive on a strictly all meat diet, uh, assuming that's a properly comprised nose to tail based diet. 
And sur- by survive, you mean, do you mean also thrive or just survive, get by? Depends on the environmental context, level of physical activity, for example. I don't think okay. an Ironman triathlete or, or a serious CrossFit or someone like that could simply because they need more glycogen because they've chosen what one might argue is a little bit more unnatural activity in terms of, of energy output when from an ancestral standpoint, human beings would have attempted to conserve energy as much as possible and not put themselves in this scenario where they're rapidly burning carbohydrates. But we're privileged in that we live these lifestyles where we can go climb Mount Everest and do triathlons and you know swing kettlebells and do races. But, but the, all those things do require arguably a higher amount of glycogen and carbohydrates than one can get on a strict all meat diet. So it depends on physical activity. But if someone were simply like walking, gardening, hunting, occasionally lifting some heavy rocks or building fences, etc. I think you can get by just fine on a, on a strict carnivore, no satel based diet. Now, that being said, when you look at things epidemiologically, I'll give you a couple examples. Just this morning, I was reading a research paper uh, that showed, I believe it was a, a Cambodian tribe, you know, they have uh, almost 90 different uh, fruits and vegetables that they consume during the year, which is like four wow. times as much as most Americans consume wide variety of herbs and spices. We see the same for most blue zones, you know, most areas where there are a large amount of centenarians, super centenarians, etc. You just see a high intake of plants and herbs and spices. And, you know, another anecdote for you is I was recently reading a book about the Spokane Indian tribe here in Washington, and they had rampant amounts of meat, you know, they would place wicker baskets, you know, under the salmon run and just literally come out with like 800 pounds of salmon a day, just from the salmon falling backwards into these buckets, and they, they could drive bison and buffalo off cliffs and just go, you know, harvest all the corpses at the bottom of the cliff, they were just so prevalent amongst the plains. So it's not like they they necessarily needed plants, but the whole time they were doing this, the women were at home, you know, harvesting tubers and berries and leaves and stems and roots. And granted, when you look at this from an epidemiological standpoint, many of these cultures are not only relying upon those type of plants and herbs and spices and roots as food sources, but also as medicine sources and ways to flavor the meats that they are consuming. And so the other thing that I think is important to consider here is the the social context, meaning that whereas I'm not disagreeing with, again, guys like Paul Saladino, that plants are kind of survival food, right? Like any wilderness survival camp that I've done, you know, the amount of calories I have to burn to plant forage and berry forage, and unless I'm super lucky and just fall into it like a gold pot of morel mushrooms or you know, or huckleberries or something like that, I'm burning far more calories gathering those plants than I am actually getting from them. And I'm also risking a lot of gastric upset due to the natural built-in plant defense mechanisms of those plants dictating that I have to do further, you know, fermenting and soaking and sprouting and pressure cooking, all of which is calorically expensive. And so I, I get the idea that those plants, when compared to animal food sources, are less convenient and efficient for both caloric density and nutrient density. But then there's the fact that even if they began as survival foods, a lot of these plants, herbs, spices, salads, vegetables, fruits, etc., they, they've wound up as staples in, in a social context that lends a great deal of enjoyment and culinary pleasure to our lives. Like when I go out to sushi, I want the whole sushi roll with the nori wrap and the seaweed salad and the fermented soy miso soup and some, you know, some dressings and, you know, the pickled ginger and the whole sushi experience. It's just, I mean, don't get me wrong. I could be perfectly happy sitting there eating like a, you know, yellowtail collar or something like that. But there's something about being able to eat all these different elements of God's good planet that I think lends a great deal of, of happiness to one's life. You know, we had company over the other night and I made these, you know, these wonderful roasted chickens and I'm sitting there you know, like chewing the chicken and, you know, I'll, I'll eat off the knuckles of the chicken and suck the marrow out and I eat all the skin and, you know, and I'll drink a big cup of bone broth and then my wife will bring out apple pie. Everybody likes to gather around a nice apple pie. We got a fruit orchard in the back. She used a nice little local buckwheat and made this wonderful crunchy crust. And I had that with some coconut ice cream. And it was fabulous. I had a big smile on my face. And yeah, I didn't have to have the apple pie from a from a physical, physiological, biological standpoint. But from a psychological standpoint, it's, it's, it's kind of nice to be able to just enjoy a wide variety of foods. So I don't think you can ignore the, the social context as well. I find that sometimes... 
you know, and you might find this too, Ben, with the crowds that we hang out with, sometimes there's a myopic focus on just how a food is processed or the biological effect of it with the psychological component left out. And I, I think we have to acknowledge some, some of the happiness that can be derived from eating a wide variety of, of foods rather than just focusing on something like a nose to tail carnivore based diet. But there, you know, there's no denying that I, I think someone can get by just fine for their entire life on a nose to tail based carnivore diet. Well said. As we wrap this up, I want to ask you one final question here. It's about your book. What's the one thing, if there was one thing, that you want those who read your book to take away from your book? Well, you know, I, it's, it's tough to say because I wrote it kind of like a cookbook. Like, you know, somebody would be like, I'm having all these sleep issues, yada, yada. So I'm, well, flip to chapter 18, where I just decode lighting, circadian rhythms, napping, meditating, breath work, nutrients, supplements, timing of exercise, everything related to sleep. So for that person, that's going to be the most important chapter. Or, you know, if someone's having gut issues, I'll have them flip to the two chapters on the gut where I get into everything from, you know, SIBO to mold and mycotoxins and fungus to biofilm to, you know, how to test your gut, you know, different stool panels, etc. And, um, you know, for that person, the gut might be the most important. So, uh, you know, really, it's a difficult answer, but I'd, I'd say the number one thing that I want people to get out of the book is that it scratches the itch for their particular need and that it actually contains the scratch for that itch because I just wanted to cover everything that I could in the book. And so if someone were a little bit more of like a, they just comprehensively were curious, I would say the main thing I want someone to get out of it is to know their body, their brain and their spirit better to just become intimately connected to how their body works, how their brain works, how their spirit is fulfilled, and then know everything that they need to know to optimize those three parameters. And so, you know, I got turned down by so many publishers for that book, because it has a lot of big words, and it's long, and it covers a lot of stuff. And it's got some controversial things in there, everything from, you know, God to ayahuasca. And so, you know, it's kind of a unicorn of a book, so to speak. And I, I wound up working with a publisher who was willing to publish the book that, frankly, I wanted to read and kind of returning full circle to your question about the five regrets of the dying. I'd rather publish a book that based on my true authentic self is the kind of book that I want to read and have on my bookshelf and return to over and over again. And the words of Ryan Holiday, more of like a perennial bestseller type of approach rather than write a flash in the pan book that someone's going to read, put down and never come back to again. So I want this to be like a like a Bible for people's bodies, so to speak. I love it. Really respectable, Ben. Where is the best place for, for the audience to go get the book? You know, just boundlessbook.com is fine, even though I, th I think you can get it just about anywhere books are sold. Uh, but yeah, boundlessbook.com will we'll just, you know, there's links to Amazon for international listeners. I think we got our international book depository listed on there. And, you know, that's, that's a good spot to go. We got, got a Kindle version, 40 plus hour long audible version, and then the, uh, the uh, hard copy. Did you read the audible? Nope, I did not. I that returns to what I was explaining about Gary Keller's one thing and mm. Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. I would have loved to have read the book. And I realized a lot of people really wanted me to read the book. I realized I have a lot of podcast listeners who like to listen to my voice saying the things that I believe. But, you know, editing studio time, etc, all put together, it would have come out to and this is what I think about a lot of things, 90 hours that I don't get to be a part of my two young boys formative years. And so I decided to have a really, really great narrator, the same guy who works with me on a lot of podcast stuff, do the reading. And I trained him up well, made sure he knew exactly all the phrases when, you know, anytime he didn't know how to pronounce something, he'd come back to me. And, and so I, I think it turned out fantastically, possibly even better than, than me having read it myself. Uh, what's his name? James. James, shout out to James because 40 plus hours. Are you kidding me? That is quite the job. So good job, James. I want to acknowledge you, Ben, for being such a, a pioneer in the space. A lot of the work that I get out there, your fingerprints are all over that. Credit to Dr. John Laurence, who's a good friend of mine who connected us. I go, I drive up and down to his clinic. And just keep shining, man, doing your life on purpose with your purpose. This conversation was fantastic, and I support your mission. I just want to say thank you for getting your work out there into the world. Sweet up. Thanks, bro, and thanks for your creative alliteration and misspellings. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually I dig that brand. It's a cool shirt. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ben. If you want to watch the video 
interview with Ben, head to youtube.com slash keto camp. Also check out all of the links and the resources and everything that we spoke about can be found in the notes of this podcast. Please text this episode to a friend, somebody who you believe can get value from it. And if you haven't subscribed to the Keto Camp podcast as of yet, hit that subscribe button. We release a brand new episode every Monday and every Friday. And please, I encourage you to leave the show a rating and a review. Just a reminder of the Keto Camp membership where you can get access to videos, a private Facebook group, exclusive live stream Q&A with me, downloadables, a monthly newsletter with Keto Biohacks, and so much more. You can get access to all of this for just a monthly payment, one monthly payment of $5. Cancel anytime. Head to startketocamp.com to get access to this immediately. We'll also put a link in the notes, startketocamp.com. Well, thanks so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. You'll hear me on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.